According to an article in CNBC, the 10 most stressful jobs. Number 10, taxi driver. Number nine, senior corporate executive. Then there's public relations executive, a news reporter, then event coordinator, then broadcaster. And then the top four are police officer, airline pilot, firefighter, and the most stressful job is to be an enlisted military personnel. Now, if that list had been made in AD 80, I believe the top stress-filled job would have been a church planter. Because so far, the Apostle Paul has been struck blind and then healed. He had an attempt on his life in Damascus. He had many Christians reject him initially because of his past. He had people in Jerusalem seeking to kill him. He'd experienced a split with a good friend. Jewish opposition in Antioch, Pisidia, was uh, so intense that uh, people rallied around trying to drive him out of town. And they accomplished that. In Iconium, the Jews fed other lies and kicked him out of town. In Thessalonica, uh, he had to run away in the middle of the night to keep from being killed. And in Philippi, he was beaten and thrown in jail. Now, we know by looking at all these incidents that we have seen so far, and that's just the ones that Luke records. I'm sure there are probably many others that he didn't record. But the opposition was mainly from a religious crowd. It's probably not a surprise to many of you. Uh, Their modus operandi was to spread lies, get others to rally around their cause against Paul, and then try to kill him or at least run him out of town. But none of this stopped the Apostle Paul. And that brings us to Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. Let's all stand as we look at this. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Next slide, please. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Father, as we gather together around your word and we read a passage like this, there are many truths to mind. And I pray that you'll, by the power of your Holy Spirit, take something for each and every heart represented here today. 
and not only illuminate that truth, but make changes in our thoughts, make changes in our perspective, in our lives, in our behavior as a result. We want to be doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away at night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So he's leaving Thessalonica, where they had been forced out by a number of Jews. Not all the Jews, because we know that some of the Jews actually believed in what Paul was saying about Jesus being the Messiah. But there were some that got really upset. And so those Christians in Thessalonica helped Paul to escape. What may seem like a failure on the surface, you know, getting thrown out of multiple towns while you're on an evangelistic tour. I mean, you know, you'd think this has failed because I'm getting thrown out, right? But by the providence of God, God was using that to move Paul to another city. And so the gospel was being spread through the vehicle of persecution. Kind of an amazing thing. I mean, when I look at the events in my own life and I look at my my biggest failures or obstacles, you know, I can see how God has used many of those in my life to, to help me or to move me in another situation. And we often fail to realize that at the time, don't we? Because we get upset because our goals are blocked or our, our pride gets in the way. But my failures are God's redirection. Our failures are God's redirection. Paul went to Berea, which was a leading city in a Macedonian district. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue in order to give the gospel to the Jews first. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. To me, it's interesting to see that Luke, the author of Acts, is comparing the response of one church to another to the Word of God. And as he's comparing Thessalonica, who got very agitated and there was fierce opposition, to Berea, he's saying that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonicans. Now, noble is a word that originally meant high-born. In other words, having good breeding, privilege, or money. But it later had this general connotation to simply mean being open and generous. The idea is that the Bereans were willing to listen to set aside their own biases and prejudice, and that takes a person being very open and generous. Uh, To be to be honest with ourselves, right? To be frank with ourselves, to set aside a prejudice that is not always easy to do. This takes great work on our part. It takes intellectual honesty. What is taking place here is that these people are not just taking in Paul's words uncritically. No, but they are in their own examination of the scriptures, seeing if what Paul is saying is true. 
when if there's a missing ingredient for much of Christendom today, could you not agree with me? It's this, right? That, that many people are indeed gullible. Uh, and they didn't just do this on the Sabbath. The passage says they did this every day. It implies that there, there was discussion with Paul or amongst themselves about the Scripture and whether it was really true that Jesus was the Messiah as he opened up the Old Testament Scriptures to them. I mean, if, if these Jews could put aside the, the political and uh, social and, and religious prejudice, put aside that for a time being, and by doing so, they could understand who Jesus really was as the Messiah. Don't you think we can do that? One of the greatest challenges as I teach on campus to help students come under truth because many don't even recognize truth as a category. So you have to first address that because none of us can really operate without the concept of truth. Maybe in a philosophy class, we'll talk about how truth doesn't really exist, but in real life, we know that's hogwash, all right? that there really is a reality, that there really is truth. I mean, when the train is going down the track, I don't say to myself, now, is this just a mirage or is that really a train? I think I'll just go ahead and go anyway. No, we recognize that there there are things we have to acknowledge in the real world, that there's a a metaphysical reality, and many philosophers excuse that and say that's that's not real, and people extrapolate from that, and then obviously there cannot be any religious truth. So it takes time to kind of break that thinking down. And by the way, we'll, we'll look in the weeks ahead when Paul was at Mars Hill in Athens and he's dealing with these philosophical arguments uh, that were an obstacle to many of them in terms of, of the gospel. So these people were not gullible. They were intellectually honest. They, they had some scriptural integrity. And they were setting aside their biases so that they could see the truth of things. Chapter 17 of Acts is a much-needed emphasis today in our world, is it not? So here's some takeaways, perhaps, by application that I'd like for us to think about or consider just from verse 11. Number one. Don't assume everything you hear is true, especially when it's from spiritual leaders. Don't assume that everything is true, especially when you hear stuff from spiritual leaders. I mean, some people are awestruck by a position, such as a pastor or a Christian teacher. I don't think of myself in some kind of authoritarian way. And it... it, It's hard for me to track that I might just be giving my opinion with something or I might just, you know, just saying something off the cuff and people will think that I'm giving some kind of injunction or this is the way it is. And I have to remember that people have great respect for the position. There's nothing wrong with that, but you just can't take my word as the gospel, right? As the final say on things. Some are impressed with people that are on the radio or, or, or TV or, you know, slick their hair back really nice like most evangelists do. Some are taken up with the personality of a person who speaks with great persuasion, okay? 
They're great orators. Maybe they make quotes from important people. Whether a person stands up as a religious leader behind a pulpit or, or, or wears a robe or is a good speaker, none of these are the litmus test for discerning truth. We must never turn off our truth filter, especially when it comes to religious leaders. Here's the second thing. Trust those who can admit that they're wrong and have changed a perspective or behavior. I remember once hearing a man who was a uh, spiritual leader say that he and his wife never argued and never had a disagreement. And this person had been married many years. Guess who I never approached about a marital issue? Now, a guy like that is either so overbearing, his wife dare not disagree, or they never had an open discussion about anything important. That's just not the world I live in. I don't understand that at all. And I have a tendency not to trust a person who portrays themselves in such a light. When I'm with someone who admits they're wrong, who is humble and adjusts their opinion or behavior to fall under truth, that increases my trust in that individual. It's not a person who's without problems. It's a person who admits such and submits to truth in the midst of those issues. I mean, you, you simply cannot be human and maturing and at the same time always think you're right and that you should never be corrected. If a person gets defensive when they're faced with truth, if they run when they are uh, corrected about something or never want to have that discussion, you can pretty much be assured that, that pride or comfort has won over truth. And, you know, I'll admit that pastors can be the worst at this. You know, they, they think they have to be a good example, right? And so they never want to let the cat out of the bag that they're struggling with issues. You ever notice, by the way, Pastoral illustrations usually always, when it talks about their life, are dealing with issues that were in the past. I mean, nobody is presently dealing with lust. Nobody presently has an anger problem. It's always, you know, 30 years ago, I remember when I struggled with, okay? I mean, who are we kidding? Come on. We all have issues that we struggle with. I've told many of you this story. I've told this story many times. It bears repeating again. About 20 years ago or so, there was a church in Kansas City that uh, was looking for a pastor, and they called me, and we were at a particularly vulnerable time. And so uh, they had come down here uh, to the church, sent a couple people here to look and, and hear a sermon. You know, I preached, and then afterwards they said, well, you know, we're not going to be calling you to be our pastor. And here's the reason they gave. Because in the sermon, you gave an illustration of arguing with your wife. And we don't want a pastor who argues with his wife. Wow. And I thought, they just did me the biggest favor. Okay? I mean, who would want to work in an atmosphere like that? It's one of the things I so appreciate about you as, as a congregation. Uh, that you let me and my wife argue all the time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
But there, there's not this extra expectation that just because I'm a pastor, that means that, you know, we're not going to have common human issues, and you allow me just to be who I am without that extra stuff. So thank you for that. So the issue here is really not whether you have issues, but whether you can take a, a, an open Bible and, and, and a humble heart and address those things, right? That's really the issue. And that's what hopefully every genuine good spiritual leader does. The third thing to consider in applying what the Bereans were doing here is that because a person quotes from the Bible does not mean that they are using it appropriately. Okay? I mean, there are folks who quote many Bible verses out of context and make it say something that the Bible does not. Now, we assume that when the different letters that compile our Bible were were written, these different books, that the authors had an intent to communicate to an audience with a specific meaning. And it's that specific meaning that we are seeking to know. And frankly, some people just don't want to do their homework. Some people just don't want to take the time to consider what that original meaning may be. They just want it to be how I can use that for my own purposes. That's eisegesis, not exegesis. That's, making, that's twisting the passage to make it say something it doesn't. And this is especially true when it comes to the sexual ethics of our society or the progressive church, you know, trying to fit the Bible to make it say something. Or, or you know, with those who will say that, you know, God wants you to be rich or something, or God won't allow any sickness with anybody, that kind of thing, okay? It just doesn't fit. It's like the guy who, you know, is really overweight and he wears a, a shirt that's a couple size too small and he's got about eight inches of bare belly showing. And it's like, dude, it doesn't fit, all right? <laughs> Get something else, all right? And, and in this case, the interpretation just doesn't fit the Bible. And what they're trying to do is make the Bible say something that aligns with the culture, with maybe their own behavior. But the culture does not determine truth. God is the standard, God is the authority, and he's conveyed some of his thoughts to us in what we now know as the Bible. Paul would later write, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know what that means? Your mind has to continually change. You have to continually be humble to change some thoughts, to renew your mind that by testing you uh, may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible is a roadmap for us to find our way in the midst of a culture that, let's face it, man, people are, are grasping at straws to find out what life is about, where there's purpose. They're grasping at straws to find out any kind of standard or, 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 or mores within the, the, the society. They're grasping at straws about identity and a host of other issues. And, and I wish that those that particularly are in the religious world would just be honest about how they're handling the Bible and just say, you know what, I don't accept any of it. 
and I don't like it. That would at least be intellectually, intellectually honest. Instead of trying to fit the Bible within their, you know, postmodern or progressive ethic. But then many who do that and who disparage the Bible, it always fascinates me that, you know, you have these religious leaders who will disparage most of the Bible, but then use it on Sunday morning. That makes no sense to me. Why do you even bother if you don't believe it? Right? I mean, why do you even bother? Uh, why don't you just use the Koran or the Book of Mormon or whatever else? But why would you use a text you find to be inconsistent and outdated? Now, I don't find those things. I think the Bible is, is accurate, and I think that it has stood the test of time, and I think it's consistent with history. It's uh, the, the bibliographical evidence for the, what we have today being consistent with the original manuscripts is incredible. We have nothing to apologize for. But perhaps even more pernicious within the church are those who don't question the authority of the Bible, but they continually misuse it to promote their own agendas or their own brand of God, like I talked about before, about you know, wanting to get rich, or you know, God always wants us healed, and then quoting scriptures out of context. This easily dupes unsuspecting Christians and then creates their faith uh, to be a source of great heartache later on. Now, what I think we should find encouraging about this here in, in Acts 17 is the idea that God is giving honor to the individual priesthood of the believer. In other words, we can read the Bible and we can interpret the Bible on our own and we can understand it, right? We can value our teachers and, and, our, and our faith community, but we can still read it for ourselves. Now, when my wife came to Christ, she was in a, a religious tradition that the religious leaders did not encourage you to read your Bible. They would be the ones to interpret it for you. But when she came to Christ and she started reading the scriptures, it was incredibly helpful for her uh, to, to realize, wow, these are things I can gain on my own and, and learn about God and, and learn about Christ. And she was just, you know, ferocious in her, in her hunger for the scriptures, which has continued all these years. So we love our teachers, but teachers can sometimes be wrong, right? And we have to have knowledge of the word of God and, and discernment to know and, and deal with issues that, that may come up and, and hold our teachers accountable. That's why I so appreciate our pastor accountability groups of meeting with other guys and helping us not only with making sure that we're um, using the Bible well, but that we can keep our personal lives intact and, and accountable in terms of integrity. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. It, again, it's kind of an odd way of saying it, but, but Luke is saying when he says not a few Greek women, he's saying a lot of Greek women, all right? And, and all through the book of Acts, we see this incredible response from religious and irreligious people to the message of the gospel 
and to the word of God as it was being preached. And this truth was being delivered by, by men and women of integrity, men and women who delivered the word of God with, with clarity and boldness. And it was backed by a genuine community of believers that were adhering to, devoted to, the apostles' teaching. We learned about this in Acts 2. Uh, the breaking of bread and prayer and, and, and serving one another and seeing God moved in the midst. It's another way of saying that these people were committed to the essentials. And this was the recipe for God to change lives within all of these different communities. And it's the same today. I mean, nothing thrills us more than to, to see people submitting to the word of God than to see people come to Christ and, and making decisions based upon the wisdom of the word of God. That's, that's discipleship. That's, that's being equipped. And that's exciting. Many in Acts believe. We ought to be praying continually for our church that God would continue to soften the hearts of people and that we'd see many come under his lordship. There were people of high standing who were not religious and some who were religious. There were Jew and Greek. There were women. Luke is going out of his way to paint a picture of, of a very diverse body of people who were believing the gospel and who were being formed in this thing that we call a church. And so in the face of cultural and racial barriers, God was bringing them together in unity under the gospel. God's best work is not a homogenous group who agree on politics, who agree on secondary lifestyle issues, who look the same, who are from the same economic strata, who come from the same background. He delights in seeing a rich hue of many shades and colors and opinions coming together, and as Paul would later write, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This unity took place in the early church because there was, there was this commitment to the authority of the word of God. And what happens when there's not? Well, the state of affairs that we have today, right? Um, but consider the beginning of the garden. Uh, the serpent hated the word of God and caused doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve. Are, are you really sure that's what God meant? Are you really sure that God said that? I don't think so. You know, really, it's not going to matter. Just do what you want, okay? And it's going to be fine, really. And what happened? Well, Adam and Eve experienced division in their relationship with God. They began to hide themselves from one another. There was division now in their relationship with one another. They started hiding. How we, how we respond to the Bible, how we respond to the Word of God, it does matter. We realize that, that God is not messing around. And there, there, there's an interesting 
passage in the book of Thessalonica that Paul wrote to the church that he had just run from to get to Berea because there was still a group of believers that stayed and were, and were growing. And he's commending them for their growth. And listen to what he says. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, learning that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there to agitating and stirring up crowds. So trouble ensued, just like it did in Thessalonica. In fact, a group of Jews, not all of them, but a group of them, came from Thessalonica, followed Paul to Berea. And they were upset that he was preaching again. And so they rallied around this mob to stir up trouble. There were these unholy alliances. They're trying to get people to be upset with Paul. And you know, can we not say that this goes on today, that there are people who get agitated when truth is proclaimed? Right? Particularly when there is a religious truth claim. I mean, people get upset with talk of the gospel, with saying that Jesus is the only way, talking in, a, in an exclusive way like this. Timothy Keller wrote in his book, A Place for Truth, where, where he addressed this. And he claims he often hears people say, I don't know which religion is true, or no one can know the truth. And he says, this often leads to a conversation like this. And I quote Keller, I'm talking to someone who does not believe in Christianity or Christ. At some point, he or she responds to me suddenly, wait a minute, what are you trying to do to me? I respond, I'm trying to evangelize you. You mean you're trying to convert me? Yes. You're trying to get me to adopt your view of spiritual reality and convert me. Yeah. How narrow, how awful. Nobody should say that their view of spirituality is better than anybody else and try to convert them to it. Oh, no, no, no. Everybody should just leave everybody else alone. Wait a minute, I say. You want me to adapt your take on spiritual reality? You want me to adopt your view of all the various religions? What are you doing to me? What you're saying is, you have a take on spiritual reality, and you think I would be better off, and the world would be better off if we adopted yours. I have my take on spirituality, and I think mine is better than yours, and I'm trying to convert you to mine. If you say, don't evangelize anybody, that is to evangelize me into your Western, white, individualistic, privatized understanding of religion. Keller concludes by saying, what's more narrow? It's not narrow to make an exclusive truth claim because everybody makes an exclusive truth claim. Everybody has a take on reality. Everybody thinks the world would be better if those people over there adopted mine. Everybody. Narrowness is not the content of a truth claim. Narrowness is our attitude toward the people who don't share 
our point of view. End quote. You know, the Christian of all people has a worldview that recognizes the value of the individual because they are made in the image of God. And that individuals, therefore, are deserving of respect, are deserving of love, right? Now, the evolutionary naturalist, and I'm not claiming that every non-believer is an evolutionary naturalist, but it is the most common worldview if you're not a believer. It has no basis to give the individual unique and innate value. Often when I ask students about this, what value is based on, they'll say something like, well, you know, all human beings are more creative, more intelligent, blah, blah, blah. And I say, okay, so it's, it's the, the smarts of an individual that make the individual valuable. So I guess what you're saying then is that an A student is more valuable than a C student. Well, no, 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 I'm not saying that. Well, you are if you say it's about the smarts. Well, then they'll, they'll back away from that. So, so what is it? Um... Well, they're just, you know, basically, well, they don't know, okay? And here's what I think we have to offer to the world, okay? And it's kind of an odd twist. But the unbeliever has to borrow from the Christian worldview to give an individual value and therefore a reason to be tolerant, and so in a queer kind of way, this view of tolerance today is actually borrowed from a Christian worldview because we can give people value and respect because they are indeed valuable and made in the image of God. The, the issue is that the world has nothing to base that value upon. It all falls apart. And to me, if you're discussing religion or worldviews with people, I'll often start there with the human being because the world is, doesn't know and has difficulty explaining. Now, if people are truly honest about evolutionary naturalism, they realize there is nothing unique about the human being. We're just another species, and that's it. But not many are willing to swallow that pill, that there's, there's no hope, after death, there's no foundation for ethics, there is no free will, there is no God, most aren't willing to just swallow that whole message. So they, they want to not accept God, but they also want to be able to have unique, innate value for the human being. But the only place that can really support that is the Christian worldview. Now, in the case of the raucous Jews that had come to Berea, they only gave value to those who agreed with them. And by the way, may we never be those kinds of Christians. I think we often, particularly if you've been at Christ Community for a while, I would hope that you can appreciate the culture where we can accept people, you know, no matter what religious background that they come from. And I've told you this before, and I'll say it again. I don't really care whether you're Pentecostal, Baptist, Reformed, whatever it is, what your background is. We can be, we can be united around the gospel, right? Now, it's not that I don't have opinions about those things. We do. But that's not what our unity is based on. 
in many faith communities, it is based on agreeing on the, the, the particulars of those things, and it just gets very narrow. I just don't find that to be very appealing to me. Uh, but that's just me. You may like that narrowness. Go for it. Um, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul ends up in Athens. He allows Silas and Timothy to stay in Berea a while and help to um, you know, teach the church and equip the church, and then they join him in Athens later. So the effective mission of Paul, that God had given Paul, was sent to another city, and the vehicle in which God sent him was through rejection. He was rejected in one city, and that sent him to another. Think of this. I mean, when we feel rejected, do you realize that it's maybe God is doing something supernatural in that? I mean, first of all, i got to just be honest with you about this. I don't want to get off too far, but usually when I feel rejected, it has nothing to do with the other person. 99% of the time, it has to do with me. That's number one. Right? You know, oversensitive, you know, just thinking about myself, that's usually the issue. I mean, just to be honest. Um, but let's just say, even if it wasn't, let's say that feeling of rejection is true and accurate and, you know, people are saying or doing things. Let's just say that that is the case. Can God not use that to help us see that our security is in him? Can he not use that to clarify our vision, to maybe move us somewhere? Rejection, listen, my friends, rejection is not the end of ministry. Rejection refines our ministry, right? Rejection is not the opportunity for me to say, forget it, I'm done, I quit. No, rejection is an opportunity to ask God, what else do you have for me? I'm okay maybe if these people don't want it, but how about over here? You stay at the task. You're still on mission. You're still moving forward. You're not giving up with the, the preaching of the word and, and the gospel. Sure, there may be people who don't like it. Sure, there may be those who kick you out. I've had that happen before. Been kicked out of a church before. Been kicked out of homes before. Had the police call on me before just for giving the gospel. But does that mean you quit? Does that mean you wallow in, in this or you take on some martyr complex? No. You continue on. And you realize, you know what? God is just moving me to, to something else. And that's the sovereign will of God at work in our lives. I can trust him with that. Hey, if I can trust him to help me when things are good or to answer my prayer when I'm asking for a, a new job or money or whatever, can I also not trust him in rejection when I'm deeply hurt? And can he not enter, in, enter into that moment just as much as he can with any other need? I'm here to tell you. And he delights in that. He works well in that. Let's pray.